welcome to Ask the Expert. It's a, a pop-up digital cafe for scientists who study type 1 diabetes and interdisciplinary um, fields. And uh, today we're here with Dario Jurasse, PhD. He's located at Harvard. He recently was um, given the, um, I think, the, the, best, uh, the best abstract at IPEDA. Uh, Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, pretty good. Um, he began his training in cell and gene therapy for type 1 diabetes in 2011 at University of Technology in Sydney, Australia, in the lab of Professor Anne Simpson. And his early work was focusing on the in vivo transdifferentiation of pig hepatocytes into insulin producing beta cells. He then received his PhD in 2017, also at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, where he was looking at the differentiation of mouse mesenchymal uh, stem cells into beta cells. And then he moved to Boston to Doug Melton's lab at Harvard as postdoc, where he's currently working on the genetic engineering of immunovasive human stem cell derived islet cells. So basically trying to find uh, and create the invisibility cloak for, right, for islet cells so that they can be transplanted um, into those who need candidates, such as those who have type 1 diabetes. That's exactly so, right. Yeah. So welcome. Um, so happy to have you and love to see some slides. Um, yeah, of course. Thank you for the invitation. Um, let me try and share my screen here now. Okay. See how I go. Okay. Well, once again, thank you for the invitation, Monica. Um, I've been following all the, uh, the Sugar Science Ask the Experts um, videos on YouTube. And um, they're always very interesting and very informative. So I'm happy to be here to share some uh, unpublished data. Um, I've been in Doug's lab now for about four years, uh, working on this problem of engineering immunovasive human stem cell-derived islet cells. And I think this is uh, probably one of the hottest topics at the moment in the field of uh, beta cell replacement therapy. Okay. And yeah, and in fact, I think Viasite just released, um, did a press release on some really interesting uh, clinical trials that they're going to be doing with their gene edited lines. So it'll be interesting to, you know, the safety and efficacy of, of those trials. Um, but I'll start off now, I think. Um, and I like to start with this slide because it really shows the proof of concept as to why we're interested in uh, generating stem cell derived islet cells. And this slide essentially tracks uh, glucose. Um, glucose concentration in diabetics pre and post islet transplantation. And so before islet transplantation, you can see that their blood sugar levels vary quite significantly throughout the day. So this is throughout the time course of a, of a day. And in gray here is the normal glycemic range. So this is really where you, they, where these people want to be. Normal people are within, um, within this range. And in fact, after islet transplantation, you can see that this works quite well in uh, normalizing their blood sugar levels. And so this really is the proof of concept as to why we want to use stem cell derived islet cells as a cell replacement therapy. And the reason being is that islet transplantation is limited by um, two, has two major limitations. The first being that it is limited by the number of donors. So islets need to be harvested from cadaveric donors. And in most cases, you need to uh, harvest uh, islets from multiple donors to treat a single indi an individual. And the second problem is that they are also then required to be on lifelong immunosuppression, which comes with a whole host of um, nasty side effects that we kind of want to avoid. And so I think we've probably addressed maybe the, sh the, the, the issue of shortage of supply by 
uh, generating stem cell derived islet cells. And this slide here kind of summarizes a good 10 to 15 years of work um, trying to essentially coax a pluripotent stem cell or an embryonic stem cell through the developmental pathway that leads to the production of beta-like cells. And in fact, at the end of this differentiation protocol, we end up with a heterogeneous population of endocrine cells, which include alpha cells and some delta cells and some off-target cells as well, which I think at the end of the day, we're going to also try to eliminate from, um, from these products. But ultimately the goal is to then transplant these cells into individuals with uh, type one diabetes, such that it then um, uh, cures their diabetes. And I think Vertex also have released uh, recently uh, a single patient that was dosed with half a dose of, um, of their therapeutic dose of their stem cell derived islet cells, which showed some really um, significant improvements in the uh, quality of that person's life. Yeah. Um, but, I think the, the, the problem now that we're trying to solve is the immunogenicity of these cells. So we'd like to put these cells back into a person, um, ideally uh, without any encapsulation and to uh, avoid immune rejection of these cells. And so there are two main strategies that um, many labs, including our own, are pursuing to, to identify um, you know, novel uh, gene edits to induce hyperimmunogenicity. And the first strategy is to use where we introduce uh, a lentiviral CRISPR knockout library into Cas9 expressing beta cells, transplant these into uh, in vivo into mouse models, and then perform longitudinal in vivo cell imaging using bioluminescence imaging, and then ultimately recovering the grafts that survive. And ideally, these would be the cells that have been uh, protected from immune rejection and try to understand what edits have, uh, what edits are unique to those cells that have provided them with that uh, protection. Uh, the second strategy is more of a targeted engineering approach. And this is the approach that I've taken, which is to kind of take, um, to, to adapt uh, immune evasive mechanisms from many uh, biological phenomena. And these include tumor biology, uh, viral evasion, uh, fetal maternal tolerance, and microchimerism, and try to engineer each of these individual uh, strategies into uh, an ES cell or IPS cell that would then ultimately be differentiated into stem cell-derived islet cells. And on this slide, I've kind of just summarize some of the main and well-known pathways that, are, that we can interfere with um, to, to induce some type of tolerance or immune. But in fact, we're not the only ones that have been interested in this. There have been a number of papers now that have been published on generating hypermunogenic stem cells. And in fact, recently there were two papers, uh, one from Ron Evans' lab and one from Matthias Hebrick's lab, that nicely showed that you could potentially protect these stem cell-derived islet cells by um, by engineering them either to overexpress PDL1 or by eliminating some uh, class one molecules from the surface of these cells. And so, um, but, but one of the problems with these strategies, though, is that many of them uh, suffer from transgene persistence issues. So you try to introduce um, your transgene of interest into your uh, embryonic stem cell. And then after differentiation, what, in most cases, what you find is it's either not there at the end of your differentiation, or you have a mosaic expression of your transgene of interest. And then post-transplantation, those transgenes could potentially be further down-regulated. And so what we want is we want to develop an engineering strategy that will result in persistent expression of our transgenes such that the immune evasive phenotype that we generate um, can be persistent in vivo as well. 
And so essentially, um, to, to, we, we solved this by targeting the expression of luciferase to the GAP-DH locus. So the GAP-DH gene is a constitutively expressed gene. And we reason that if we targeted our trans genes to this locus, that we could get constitutive and persistent expression of our trans genes. And in fact, we showed that we could successfully differentiate ES cells into expressing luciferase from the GAP-DH locus into stem cell-derived beta cells, as is characterized by NKX 6.1 and C-peptide expression. And that when we transplant these cells into either immune-deficient mice, which are DKO mice, double knockout mice, or immune-competent mice, we can see their Persistent expression in the immune deficient mice, whereas in the immune competent mice, they're completely wiped out within about 10 days. And that is a xeno rejection that you see in the ICR mice. So that's human to mouse um, xeno rejection. And so we were quite confident that if we used a similar strategy, we could introduce tolerogenic molecules also at the GAP-DH locus to engineer uh, hyperimmunogenic stem cells. And so we actually generated a very similar construct where we introduced luciferase as a reporter of cell viability, because ultimately we want to determine whether our cells are surviving or dying, both in vitro and in vivo. And luciferase is a great reporter of cell viability and also co-introduced tolerogenic molecules in, in this case, I'm going to use HLA-E, uh, the HLA-E long chain fusion as an example. And then what I did was I then systematically knocked out um, beta-2M in these cells such that they were deficient for all uh, class one molecules except for the long chain fusion. So these cells now either express, so we, we've generated three cell types now, wild type cells that express luciferase and that still express all their MHC molecules. Uh, beta 2M deficient cells, so which are a control line that express no HLA. And then these BEC cells, which uh, express luciferase and only the HLAE single chain fusion but no other cl uh, class one molecules. Daria, why did you guys go uh, for HLAE first? I mean, did you ever think about HLAG, right? Because that's uh, a protective uh, feature at the uh, placental trophoblast from uh, kind of create, it's, it's helping create that immune privilege space of the placenta. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we did test a number of uh, HLA molecules. We also tested HLA G, and we found that HLAE had a stronger effect versus HLAG. So that's why we kind of went with HLAE over HLAG. But you could also introduce HLAG as well, because at the end of the day, I think ultimately it's going to require multiple <laughs> transgenes to really achieve true uh, hyperimmunogenicity. But yeah. in this case, um, we've gone with one um, to, to kind of show proof of concept. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so then ultimately what we wanted to do was show that we could differentiate all of these gene modified lines into SC beta cells using our um, different differentiation protocol. And so this data here just shows that we can differentiate both the wild type, the HLA deficient and the BEC line uh, into stem cell derived beta cells. And that there's no significant difference in the number of beta cells that we generate from all of these three lines. And that's really, we also then uh, characterize these cells in terms of their HLA expression and show that only um, that wild type cells uh, upregulate HLA expression upon interferon gamma stimulation, whereas the other two cell types, the HLA knockout and the HLA E expressing cells, do not upregulate HLA class one expression. And that HLA E expression is constitutively expressed only on the, um, the BEC cells, BEC beta cells, whereas in the wild type cells, uh, it's upregulated, whereas in the basal condition, it's quite lowly expressed.
And then finally, in the bottom panel here, uh, I wanted to also confirm that these cells express luciferase at uh, essentially equivalent levels. And so we just did a comparison of luciferase expression in all these three lines. And as you can see, um, there's overlapping luciferase expression um, in SC beta cells um, derived from all of these three. Forward. So next, um, ultimately, what we wanted to do was test these SC beta cells in uh, in, in vitro co-culture assays first. So what we did was we isolated various immune cell subsets from peripheral blood from various donors, uh, allo donors, um, not necessarily diabetic. In fact, we're blinded to whether they're diabetic or not. So for but human we, donors. Yeah, they're just human donors, okay. uh, allo human donors. And then we co-cultured them with uh, the SC beta cells derived from uh, these gene modified lines. And they used luminescence as a readout for cell survival. So if they light, if the cells still light up, they're, so they're alive. And if there's no light, they're dead, essentially. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's an elegant, but also very uh, short and sweet sort of way of doing things. It is. It's very nice in, in the fact that you can also translate the same assay in vivo. So you're not working with two different assay systems. Mm -hmm. um, you're using the same assay both in vitro and in vivo. Nice. So essentially what we did was um, we co-cultured them as uh, described and then uh, determined percent survival. Uh, based on luciferase expression and relative to the addition of no PBMCs. So you would expect that no PB, in the absence of any PBMCs, you'd see no killing of your SC beta cells. And what you can see in this figure here, that at multiple effector target ratios, in blue is uh, cells that were co-cultured or SC beta cells that were co-cultured with uh, naive PBMCs, and in red are activated PBMCs. And you can see that in the naive condition that beta-2M uh, knockout and Beck expressing uh, beta cells are pr somewhat protected from um, PBMC destruction. And you can see this at both effector target ratios, whereas activation of PBMCs essentially results in a wipeout of all, um, all the uh, SC beta cells derived from uh, the gene lines. And we can also see a similar profile that was not as strong with CD8 positive T cells. So when we isolate CD8 positive T cells from the same donors, repeat the assay, um, we can see a similar type of profile and protection um, against CD8 positive T cells. Um, the next thing we kind of wanted to look at was um, the, well, the, their protection against NK cell cytotoxicity. And the reason being was that once you eliminate HLA expression, the dogma suggests that these cells would be then susceptible to NK cell cytotoxicity, which was also one of the reasons why we introduced HLA-E into the cells to kind of be an uh, inhibitory signal to NK cells in the, uh, in the absence of any other classical HLA expression. But what you can see in this, uh, this is some uh, data from a recent paper published uh, in stem cell wild type and HLA deficient platelets. And what they did was that they looked at NK cell uh, activation uh, when co-cultured with primary human NK cells. And what they found, what there, was, there was no significant difference in NK cell activation between wild type and HLA knockout cells. Whereas K562 cells, which are known to be um, stimulatory to uh, NK cells, did activate uh, NK cells. And in a similar study also published recently from Sonia Schrepfer's lab, they showed that uh, human primary NK cells uh, could not destroy HLA-deficient uh, endothelial cells. 
And so if you take a closer look at this top panel here, you can see wild type cells, uh, HLA deficient cells and their transgenic line, which was a HLA CD2A CD47 knock-in line. And as you can see that there's no significant difference in the survival of these cells, but only when you add in interleukin-2 to, to the primary NK cells, do they become activated and then start to kill HLA deficient cells. And in fact, we saw something similar with our SC beta cells. Um, so we tried to repeat these assays. We co-cultured our SC beta cells with two different NK cell systems. The first system was using the NK 92 MI cell line, which is an IL-2 independent cell line. It's been retrovirally transduced to produce its own IL-2. And what you can see is that the HLA deficient cells, uh, well, the beta-2M negative cells in this system, are uh, somewhat more susceptible to NK cell cytotoxicity, whereas the HLA-E knock-in cells are protected from NK cells. Um, and then we have K562 and Raji cells in there as our positive and negative controls, respectively. However, when we co-culture our SC beta cells with primary NK cells that have also been pre-treated for five days with IL-2, which you would anticipate would destroy HLA-deficient SC beta cells, we actually see no significant difference in NK cell cytotoxicity against um, all three gene-modified lines, which is surprising when you think back to Sonia Schrepfer's work, where they showed that if you stimulated with IL-2, you could induce um, cytotoxicity against HLA-deficient endothelial cells. So this was somewhat surprising to us, and yeah. we wanted to investigate this a little further. So we went back to to some of these single-cell RNA-seq data sets that Adrian in our lab had um, developed. And we wanted to look specifically at the activating and inhibitory ligands in uh, the SC islet cells that we've generated and compare those to primary human islets. The reason being was that uh, NK cell cytotoxicity is actually dictated by a balance of both inhibitory and activating signals. And so in the absence of potentially any activating signals, there's no reason for an NK cell to become activated and destroy. And so you can clearly see here when we compare activating expression of activating ligands versus inhibitory ligands, the SC beta cells or SC islet cells and primary human islet cells display a quite strong and um, distinctive uh, inhibitory phenotype versus activating phenotype. And this may explain why our SC beta cells are somewhat intrinsically resistant to NK cell cytotoxicity within the context of HLA deficiency. We also then wanted to um, confirm the RNA-seq analysis by looking at um, protein expression by facts. And so we confirmed the expression of some of these pro, uh, molecules on the surface of our uh, SC beta cells in all three uh, lines. And you can see that our cells express the CD47 and nectin, PBR as inhibitory ligands, but that they don't express many activating ligands. Mm. Um, and then finally, what we wanted to do, I think, which is really kind of the, the the proof of the pudding was transplant these cells into humanized mice. So these are HLA uh, deficient mice. So they're double knockout mice and they've been humanized with HLA A2 mismatched PBMCs. They've also been transplanted with either the wild type or the HLA E expressing SC beta cells. And as you can see, after 35 days, our HLA E expressing SC beta cells uh, show significantly improved survival versus the, um, the wild type cells. And so this was really 
exciting to us. And we're going to be following up on some of this data with um, uh, trying to replicate these experiments in a diabetes context as well. So in a hyperglycemic context. That's um, really, that's really interesting. Oh. Yeah. So um, I think just to conclude, I think what we've shown now is that if we target transgene expression to uh, the loci of housekeeping genes, we can solve the issue regarding transgene persistence. Um, we can successfully now gene modify, uh, successfully differentiate gene modified human embryonic stem cell lines into SC beta cells with similar efficiencies to the unmodified cells. We've also shown now that HLA deficient SC beta cells are resistant to, N to T cell and NK cell cytotoxicity in vitro. And that surprisingly, SC beta cells intrinsically possess uh, an NK cell inhibitory ligand profile and that the lack of these uh, activating ligands could spare them from the missing self cytotoxicity. Uh, we've also shown that HLA deficient SC beta cells now possess an in vivo survival advantage over wild type SC beta cells. And ultimately, I think this is one of the most important kind of conclusions that we need to start to consider the intrinsic ligand profile of the differentiated cell product that we want to be producing when determining the set of genetic modifications that uh, may be required to engineer hypermunogenicity. So not all cell types are going to be as um, essentially immunogenic as others. And so if we consider... SC beta cells versus potentially endothelial cells, which are more immunogenic, the set of modifications may be somewhat reduced to engineer hypermunogenicity in SC beta cells versus a cell type that's more immunogenic. Um, so I think that's kind of really important to consider moving forward as well. Uh, and finally, I just want to thank, uh, obviously, all my colleagues in the Melton Lab and, and those who um, actively participated in, in this research as well. And so I'm happy to take any questions. Fantastic. Um, well, yeah, we, we definitely would like to take questions from the audience. You guys can unmute yourself as an audience member or you can put your question in the chat, whatever you prefer. Um, I had a couple of questions. I wondered, um, you know, can you hypothesize about your findings um, that the, what is it that makes them ligands? Yeah, so we're unsure at the moment as to why they're somewhat hyperimmunogenic. They've been, SC beta cells have been shown to be hyperimmunogenic um, in the past. I think there's a paper, um, I can't remember, Zal Dumbide et al., um, that showed that SC beta cells are somewhat hypermunogenic. But what was really interesting was that the primary human islet data seemed to match that as well. So mm. primary human islet seemed to be somewhat hypermunogenic as well. At the moment, we could only speculate as to why this may be the case, but it seems to serve us well in terms of engineering strategies. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, it'll be really interesting to find out sort of more about that as, as things progress. I wondered... Have you guys thought about or looked at um, any of these HLA deficient SC beta cells in context of viral infection like CVB? What do they do? How do they behave in that context? Yeah, so that's really important when we start to think about safety. <laughs> um, we haven't looked at that yet, but I think that's going to definitely be an avenue of testing downstream because safety is going to be the most important thing at the end of the day. Right. And I think we need to hammer that home to anyone that's working on generating hypermunogenic lines is that ultimately safety has to be one of our readouts as well. <laughs> um, and I think, like you mentioned, um, testing these cells against viral evasion, um, potentially even 
forcing them into forming teratomas to see what they do once they form a teratoma. Yeah. Uh, we don't want them to form teratomas, but we need to consider that as being a potential. Um, well, you know. if they did and you had some kind of alert or some kind of way to detect that and could remove the insert, yeah. well, then that's still could be okay. Right. Exactly. If things started to go uh, in a different direction than expected or wanted, then you could have some kind of a litmus test embedded in the implant and be able to remove it. Still, exactly. um, you know, e even if you could do the implant for, you know, a couple of months and then get another implant still mm -hmm. would be um, a lot more. Um, it, it would just be so beneficial to have that level of control um, versus what uh, many type one diabetics have currently. I agree. Yeah. Um, and in the audience, um, would anyone like to uh, unmute themselves? I really would. Uh, would love to get some conversation flow. And then I, you know, we have had uh, Adrian uh, Varis uh, join us before, and Nayara Letty, which I, I think I don't know if she was on the specific project, but I know the lab is, uh, you know, really quite in, uh, you know, connected to the Vertex uh, group. It mm -hmm. is interesting that uh, Viasite now. Uh, is connecting with the CRISPR group. And yeah. I mean, do you see some kind of symbiosis with Vertex uh, and maybe an in-house sort of CRISPR situation or external? I mean, uh, is that a direction they're going? You have any idea? I mean, you might uh, not even want to say or, or might not know, but I just thought yeah. I'd ask Look, it. that's something I don't know yet. I think that's probably on Doug's level at the moment. But... It definitely is interesting to see these companies collaborate with these genome editing kind of focused groups. Um, so we know, as you mentioned, Viasite's been in cahoots with CRISPR Therapeutics. And I think Vertex have recently mentioned that um, they're joining forces with Beam. And um, mm -hmm. so I, I'm, I'm sure that that's probably down the road for them as well. Um, yeah, I think it's all good news. I think collaboration, yeah. you know, I mean, with some healthy competition right between the mm. two camps uh, could really drive, you know, the research in the area forward. Yeah. So it's great. It's really great. Yeah. What's next for you? Um, you're going to publish this, these results. I, yeah, I that's uh, on, on the way. So everyone can read all the finer details of the paper. Yes. Cool. Yeah, so this is all uh, in preparation, trying to wrap this up now with um, the last models, as I mentioned, putting these cells into diabetic humanized mice. Um, as you can appreciate, these are <laughs> challenging uh, models to develop. Yes. Um, and I think the next step would be testing these in a more clinically relevant model. So going maybe into non-human primates um, and yeah, trying to really test true allo rejection because the models that we have or the mouse models that we have available to us right now really bias certain components of the immune system. So we're not truly able to test all our engineering strategies against um, a complete human immune system or a complete allergenic immune system. And so I think that's going to really be the the proof in the pudding for all of these um, engineering strategies and hyperimmunogenic cells is working with an in vivo model that truly recapitulates um, allergenic reject. Yeah, it definitely seems right. I mean, you know, there's this whole sort of like eyelid on a chip and organ on a chip approach, but 
it might not fully capture the environment, shall we say. So I think, um, you know, that said, I mean, Dario, this is, this is really interesting work, a very thorough and very, very detailed work that you've done. And I really appreciate you sharing it with us. It's, uh, it's fantastic. We really can't wait to see what you do next. No, thanks for having me and happy to chat to anyone after. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, we'll have, um, we'll share your, um, your email should anyone like to uh, reach out. And we typically yeah. have uh, many, many views on our, um, both our YouTube channel and uh, we share this as a podcast as well. So right. um, I'm sure it'll, the word will get out and people will be, enjoy um, what you shared with us today at other times. So thanks again. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.